Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. And that's why I love lyrics so much. That's why I spend the lion's share of my energy in terms of my engagement with the culture is through the lyrics. And that's what often engages people is these artists are able to articulate a lived experience in a level of specificity and depth in the way that the average person can't, but feels. Mm -hmm. They feel it to that level of depth Mm -hmm. and the magnitude. Mm -hmm. Can't articulate it, but Mm -hmm. it resonates because for everything that we talked about down to the physiological we know that we experience the world physiologically as much as we do, you know, at an intellectual level. And that's what the artists are able to create and give back to us. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here your co-host, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, this is Ann, and today we're going to discuss the therapeutic aspects of hip-hop music. Hip-hop and therapeutic beat-making is an extremely powerful tool for healing trauma, reducing depression, and really empowering, especially our youth. And uh, this is the second part of a two-part conversation with Dr. Elliot Gann and Dr. Raphael Travis. Now, don't worry if you didn't hear the first part because it's really a standalone. I really encourage you to listen to the first conversation where we primarily heard from Dr. Raphael Travis on his perspective on the current protest and Black Lives Matter movement. Dr. Raphael Travis is the author of The Healing Power of Hip Hop, Intersections of Race, Ethnicity, and Culture. And he's also the director of the Clinical Social Work Program at the Texas State University. And I really think he gave us a lot of insight from his perspective about really the current cultural movement. And then today, we're going to hear much more from him as well as Dr. Elliot Gann. So Dr. Elliot Gann is a clinical psychotherapist, and he is the executive director of a nonprofit program called Today's Future Sound. And this program teaches beat making and music production in the context of hip hop history and culture. And they do this in schools all over the United States, as well as juvenile detention centers. They also teach adults and have gone all the way internationally with this program. And together, both Dr. Elliot Gann and Dr. Travis, as well as with other colleagues, have joined forces to really combine hip-hop and therapeutic beat making, both also with research, and they have presented at international conferences on trauma. They have a lot to say, and I'm really happy to have them on the program. So let's jump in. You know, hip-hop is such a powerful culture, and we talk about it as a culture as opposed to just music or what you hear on the radio and, you know, and the recognition that It's a powerful and complex culture built around self and community improvement. It's built around 
this idea that we have to pay attention to ourselves, people feeling empowered enough, not just to express themselves Mm -hmm. physiologically, cognitively, and all those kinds of things, but also to actually speak to their lived experience, to have a voice, to say something, whether it's through visual art, through graffiti, or dance, or, you know, emceeing, or DJing, like that's the expression to express, to be creative, but also to give voice to something, to try to articulate some sort of message, either about how you're feeling, or some sort of commentary about the world that you lived in. You know, we're coming up on 50 years of this uniquely powerful culture. And I think what's great about it as well, you know, not only in speaking to the individual sort of journey towards better and the community's journey towards better, but being very clear about the risky elements of life as well. Mm -hmm. You know, from my angle, I'm always looking at it through the lens of empowerment and risk, right? How is it helpful and how is it potentially harmful with the recognition that risk is not distributed equally, right? So, you know, when we talk about the risk of, you know, how are the uses of substances talked about within the culture, it's recognizing the many facets of substance use, right? So from one end, that's how people self-medicate when they're going through, you know, really challenging, difficult times, that's how they self-medicate. But it's also part of the illicit economy. So Mm -hmm. when people don't have access to employment or living in poverty, it may be a way to, you know, they're always hiring. But then there's also, you know, well, how do drugs get into communities? And what are the different ways that that's happened over time? There's lots of different kind of subplots and stories that we can get into that. But hip hop has talked about all of those things, right? That's a regular narrative, like all of these things are are discussed. And so Anyway, the point is, is that it's an extraordinarily rich culture, talking about individuals, talking about the community, and really shining the light on everything that we just talked about for the past 45 minutes comes through the lens of hip hop. Literally everything that we talked about, you'll find within the narratives of hip hop. And it's always been that way. And so it's very powerful. Unfortunately, people have a very limited surface level view of what hip hop is about, both in the good and the bad, the healthy and the unhealthy. It's still a very surface view. And so a lot of times the empowering aspects are completely missed. What I spend a lot of time is connecting the individual and community and and really spotlighting some of the common narratives. They're not the only narratives, but there are five major dimensions or narratives that I see that come up in hip hop regularly. And they're related to esteem, resilience, growth, community, and change. And so between those five, you know, it focuses on the individual and focuses on the community. For me, the way that I look at it, going back to everything we talked about in terms of the positive development of people and what people need for healthy development, anytime that I'm I'm using it in any kind of educational or therapeutic capacity, I'm paying attention to all five of those areas with the recognition that that's holistic development. I'm not just trying to change unhealthy thinking about a situation because it's important. But that's a minuscule piece of what a person's lived experience is. A person's lived experience is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 
interactions with family, interactions with community, interactions with this larger kind of socio-political system. Intergenerational. 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 Yeah, in your point. Absolutely. And so... By working through hip hop and working through a lens that touches on the individual and community, we're able to kind of try to at least work at, you know, how do I show up in the world? Are there ways that I can think about things differently, do things differently? But it's giving a chance to speak to those many, many elements. And essentially, from my perspective, in general, people are trying to be more empowered. They are trying to get better in life. And so they're trying to feel better. They're trying to do better and cope with the adversities that they're faced with. They're trying to be a better version of themselves. They're trying to connect with the healthiest parts of their community and groups that they feel affirmed and valued, that they can be prideful in. And they want better conditions for those communities that they care about. And so through the model, that's where we spend our attention, right? How do we speak to those things and continually come back to those discussions? And and so that's mm-hmm. kind of the lens through which, and if you sit those five dimensions next to kind of the model, like, and, and think about life, it's just a model for life. It's just that hip hop offers so many different ways at getting at those conversations, tapping into what is important for life. And there's lots of different ways. So the way that I focus tends to be more on the analytical side, a little bit more on the cognitive side, but I speak to the breadth of it with the recognition that people that have expertise in other areas like Elliot, he speaks to the creative side as well as the analytic side, but there's a component of the culture that he has significant expertise in and can help people tap into. And so there's other people that we focus on art. So I speak to the big picture even though where my biggest comfort is what I consider myself somewhat good at (laughs) is through the lyrics, through the lyrical side of things. But from a model perspective, it's the big picture. And that's why I enjoy working with Elliot so well and learning from Elliot and everybody else that has some expertise in different aspects of the culture. I love the culture so much and really try to speak to the richness of it. DJs and producers are so gifted at what they do and to be able to engage young people in the way that, and allow them to capture their imagination of what they could do and and grow and and build their skills is, is so powerful. People that are into dance, that's its own community and we can get into kind of the particulars of it, but just recognizing that the culture is so potentially empowering in so many different ways I think we've only just kind of scratched the surface, really, of what the culture can offer. Having this entire conversation about hip-hop has just been so enlightening to me. And, Elliot, when you contacted us, the thing that was intriguing about it to me is that as we're talking about our bodies needing to come forward, right, I'm one of those ones. You guys are ready and there about the incredible healing nature of hip hop. And I'm actually now a deep believer in that. And you and my children have helped me in this process. However, as we've been talking about our cultural biases, etc., I wasn't always in that direction. And like Elliot, you were speaking earlier about what our bodies have been trained to hear, to believe, the super predator, etc. My experience and lack of knowledge related to hip hop has been transformational, but I'd like to kind of go back to maybe other people out there who might see hip hop in the way that I did for a little while. 
and bring people along with you. Meaning that for me as a parent, when I listened to hip hop, first of all, I wasn't quite exposed to it all that much. It did seem like a cultural over there. You had your country music, you had your hip hop, you had, it was all divided. But unpack this for me, because when I listen, even as a parent, I'm coming downstairs and it's very loud as we're doing the dish in my living room and I'm, I'm there and I'm wanting to bomb up my kids and I'm wanting to join with the hip hop movement. And then I start listening to the verses, right? I start hearing deep themes that then sound like violence, sounds like misogyny, sounds like you mentioned in, in the substance abuse. And I can feel the threat in my body come up. Would you disentangle that for me? Because I see that through the lens of my implicit bias. I am very knowledgeable that that's what's happening. So in your experience, what do you see? It's impossible for me to deny that it's filtered through my own race. And I've grown so much, but initially I was like, that's a movement that's not for me. You know, like I wanted to distance from it. Yeah, I think there are two sides of the answer that are important to think about. So one is like, so hip hop is not like one thing. So there's yeah. lots of different types of art or that you may engage with. We'll just go with songs for kind of lack of a better thing. If you looked at a kind of a cropped picture, you know, just hear a song or a sequence of songs and it kind of misses the culture. It misses the origin. It misses the context within which the full culture exists, right? So there have been 50 years worth of songs. So if you listen to five songs, right. you're missing 40 plus years of songs. You miss what the roots of the culture about, how things started, kind of the, you know, these core elements that we talked about. So if, if it's a cropped view, then it's not good. You know, some hip hop is, is for entertainment only. Some is... Mm-hmm just has some explicit themes and is just for that, right? So it's kind of like dessert, right? You know, cheesecake is great, but I can't eat cheesecake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? So art that you engage in certain settings may be different than art you engage for other settings or for different purposes. So I think we have to allow for there to be diversity in sort of what's consumed. I think the other part is it's subjective. So the way that you interpret it may not be the way that I interpret it. So I may be willing to listen to a song with four minutes of really risky content because there's this part of the song that really speaks to me that that's super empowering and that like that's what I latch on to and that's what sustains me. You know, so you'll have this conversation with young women all the time, you know, like what is your tolerance level for use of the word, you know, the B word or, you know, Mm -hmm. other things or how much, you know, misogyny are you willing to accept? And the range is across the board, right? Everybody has their own interpreter. So I'm like, I won't listen to any of it. So I was like, I just block it out because this is what I like. And so we have to allow for the subjectivity of it and to not try to impress upon someone else. The other piece is we have to be cognizant of the consumer and like what is their purpose for engaging it and this goes back to you know some people it's just entertainment it's just entertainment that's all it is but then we have to pay attention to like are you perpetuating something that is unhealthy or risky or negative without recognizing how it affects certain people if it's glorifying violence or it's glorifying these things, recognizing that in certain communities, like you don't want to perpetuate it because there's certain communities that are significantly affected by violence or significantly affected by misogyny, right? You start to break down gender right. statistics around assault and things like that. 
So we have to pay attention to the risky stuff and point it out. And I love hip hop. I mean, you know, not all art that is created is healthy, but sometimes for some it's, it is their lived experience, it's their social reality. And that's again, developmentally at that stage of their life, maybe not having a voice, being able to either affirm oneself or share your story about how difficult it is. When we talk about resilience narratives, a component of that is simply being able to cope with an adversity, whether it's healthy coping or unhealthy mm-hmm. coping. It is empowering to be able to say, I was faced with this situation and I got through it. And being able to voice that is very empowering. Now, whether that should be marketed as a product for people to consume without the care of the repercussions of the potential glorification of it, that's a whole nother conversation. And there's a lot of people that talk about that has been one of the significant downfalls of the culture is when it shifted to being a product as opposed Mm -hmm. to an empowering cultural tool where the shift went to mainstream consumption of this as entertainment and as a product as opposed to just its natural cultural manifestation. And And Raphael, just just to check in there to compliment what you're saying. We know that for many years now, I don't know if it's 20 or 30 years now, the main consumers who spend dollars, money on quote unquote hip hop or so-called rap music, because that was a music industry term that was used to categorize part of you know the culture of hip hop that was the mm-hmm. musical quote unquote manifestation, was white suburban folks or was mm-hmm. white, mm-hmm. usually white males who were paying mm-hmm. money for it. And so right. being sold for them, what was a fantasy that sensationalized, that captures perhaps some of their fantasies, their Mm -hmm. fears, their desires, their wishes. Again, I'm coming back to the unconscious here. And this speaks also to like, you know, how that kind of overlaps with like bodily sensation and development and that kind of stuff. They're consuming that. As Raphael pointed to, when it becomes a commodity and something that's marketed Mm -hmm. very deliberately, you have record executives choosing what narratives they want to hear that they can package and sell. And Mm -hmm. fear and the sensationalization, taking the most Mm -hmm. extreme things that will offend parents, parallel to rock and roll, jazz for earlier Mm -hmm. generations, right? Mm -hmm. And you also factor into that the fact that we live in a very violent society that Mm -hmm. permits the carrying and use of guns by police officers and citizens, as you would well know, living in Texas and the United States. And I mean, it's you have so many different factors that play into this, right? And then also... The mainstream media has for years been controlled by a white mainstream racist narrative and the people Mm -hmm. who are reporting and and people who are sensationalizing things and and the editors and the publishers are predominantly white folks. There's not an equal representation nor a representative narrative of all the people that live here. So there's a lot of complex factors there. And as Raphael points out, you know, it's not all like super positive or, you know, there's the risky narratives, but there's a lot encapsulated within what we call hip hop music and or, you know, rap, Mm -hmm. if we want to call it that. I really like Raphael's metaphor of a cropped photo, only seeing a really a very small segment of what hip hop music is, because hip hop music and its derivative subgenres, there's hundreds of subgenres now that are derivatives Mm -hmm. from it including electronic music, pretty much all electronic music, even if you consider, you know, the German craft work and, you know, Western influences. House music is a black American art form. Techno Mm -hmm. is a black American musical genre and art form. 
that's been appropriated as hip hop has by white mainstream. But just like in the in the 50s or the 60s when Elvis did it and took you know Hound Dog and appropriated it and did his version. I mean that was risky, but it was more acceptable for him to do that. Right. And, to do that. and so there's there's a lot of different kind of factors that we have to look at. You know, and there's kind of like the psychosocial political aspects of all this as well. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that we're only getting 1%, if that, of the amount of hip hop music that's being produced. And you're only going to take the really extreme, sensationalized, negative examples. There's not like a real driving force in a racist society to take the positive outcomes and shine a spotlight on that if it doesn't fit mm-hmm. with the narrative and with the white supremacist narrative in which we're framed. And I think the other thing is just speaking about the violent society that we live in and the patriarchal, sexist, transphobic, homophobic, racist society in which we live, because all those things are interconnected. You shine a light. Look at our leadership in this country. That's trauma manifested and violent. If our president was another color, they wouldn't be in in the position they are right now, right? And they would be characterized in a very different way. But because he's a white man, he can get away with all these transgressions traumas, mm-hmm. violations, criminal activities. And that's just facts. Like, that's indisputable. So to me, there's a lot of different ways to understand it. It's a complex and nuanced kind of thing to look at to try to pick out. But we're programmed as white people to be afraid mm-hmm. of black yes. folks. That's the narrative of a certain generation. And there's also the generational divide. You and I are from different generations. And then I'm from a different generation than your kids. Even I notice about myself and about people my age who are hip-hop fans, oftentimes we react neurophysiologically differently to old-school hip-hop versus Mm -hmm. new-school hip-hop, stuff that's on the radio. Whereas for me, because of my social programming and my developmental programming, an old-school hip-hop beat comes on and I can really move to it and really identify with it. I've learned how to like identify with it and it has a certain nostalgic meaning and body memory and that kind of thing i engage socially with it right there's a certain mm-hmm. social engagement versus like a new school song you know, I, I listen to new school stuff and i know Raphael does too but i still engage slightly differently in the way that viscerally when i play an old school beat versus when i play a new school beat for kids there's the oh as soon as they hear the new one and the old school one they don't have the same reaction to as if like people of my generation will hear right. it. So there, there's different elements of that. I think that we've been programmed to think and view things in a certain way. And, and as Raphael mm-hmm. pointed out, I'm just going to reiterate, we're given a small snapshot of things. And mm-hmm. we're told this is truth. This is reality. These are super predators as opposed to, you know, another metaphor or actual concrete illustration that I've heard Raphael use before is like the example of cinema. And we don't take all movies at face value, we may say that was really traumatic or scary or whatever, but we also watch, aside from the right. sociopolitical aspects of it, we watch The Wire or we watch The Big Lebowski or whatever, that uh, Fargo, for also, Breaking you know, bad. entertainment. Breaking Bad, yes, definitely. Ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. And because right. it allows us to live out these violent, aggressive fantasies that we have that we're not allowed to act out these urges again i'm getting psychoanalytic here but i think this is part of the kind of a you know adapt this is just part of our wiring as social creatures the fight flight that we're not allowed mm-hmm. to you can't you can't run out in the street and act that way and if you do if you're white perhaps you don't get arrested as much or you know you get congratulated for it i'm putting a social spin on it but like we're not allowed mm-hmm. to go generally not allowed to go and do these kind of violent act out these violent urges And so I think that, you know, that's just something to consider. But when people speak about it, like hip hop is very raw 
because it comes from marginalized communities, from communities that were exposed to unfathomable amounts of trauma, oppression, marginalization, intergenerational trauma, post-colonial, post-slavery, lack of resources. As Dr. Joy DeGroote postulates and puts out there in terms of her post-traumatic slave disorder, and I really recommend people go on YouTube and look this up. She's amazing in the way she articulates this. But, you know, thinking about, like, when did black folks in this country ever have any kind of mental health intervention? When were they ever given anything to deal with the extraordinary, not only PTSD, but complex and developmental trauma and intergenerational trauma that arguably has compounded over the generations with the continued kind of racist system that's been in place in narrative? I would recommend people really go and check out her video on post-traumatic slave disorder on YouTube. It's a really, uh, there's several videos on it and she's kind of reiterated it, but I think she points to both developmental and intergenerational kind of system and history of dysregulation out of necessity just to adapt to immediate threat. And that's, you know, in, in the work, the way to sort of cut through some of the intergenerational differences or kind of what is if, if, if we constantly think through the lens of how does this relate to my well-being? You know, I always ask kids, I say, I can't tell you what to listen to, but, I'll, you know, there are two questions I encourage you to think about. Well, what can I learn and how can I grow? So whatever content you listen to, however many curses are in it, how much expletives or whatever, whatever thematically, if we can bring it back to how does it relate to these themes of environment? Like, what is this? What do you get out of this that says something to you about how you see your place in the world? Does this relate to your lived experience, your story? Is there something about this story that connects to yours? If you constantly kind of go back through those empowerment themes, it doesn't matter what song you listen to. It could be country music. It could mm-hmm. be new school hip hop. It could be old school hip hop. The universality of sort of these core themes of empowerment always allows young people to tap in. So I can put on something that's old school, but we're, we're still talking about resilience. Like how is this person talking about getting through their life how did they do it? How do you do it? So we're, mm-hmm. we're always going to come back to something that's common regardless of where people are. But then also asking, like, what might be risky about this situation? Always pointing to it. So there's a difference between, like, sort of the entertainment side versus, like, working with somebody directly. You know, that you have a lot mm-hmm. more liberties when you're engaged in a dialogue. But people are having their own self-dialogue with the music that they engage. The other piece too is, and this is on the research side, I don't want to get too much in the tangent of that, is that there's a difference between what people engage on their own versus what they engage in the public domain. And so they're going to have a different relationship with sort of what it means for them. Uh, But then the last point of what Elliot was talking about, kind of full circle comes back to what's different about this time. You know, Elliot was asking the question about mental health treatments, and, and I, I'm assuming this is what you meant, was mental health treatment in relationship not to like a necessarily just a one-on-one personal experience, right. but sort of aggregate collective trauma over time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some people that do focus on that, but if society is unwilling to admit or validate that these things happened, some of that is starts to get peeled away a little mm-hmm. bit now with what's going on. If we can just validate, like, you know, get rid of the gaslighting about these issues, yep. you know, <laughs> why are you bringing up the race car? Why are you, you know, if we can at least just move the conversation away from 
those kind of microaggressions around people simply expressing what their reality is, then that can kind of move the needle a little bit. And I feel like, at least within my model of, of using hip hop, it's always with attention to these larger inequities and injustices. Mm-hmm. That's always part of the conversation. Yeah. When you say that, I want I want to kind of unpack that a little bit because we spoke a little bit to sort of you always have to to manage the risk. But what I'm really hearing and have grown quite a bit in this process is that the deep need for the self-expression and the anger and the outward manifestation of these intergenerational abuses being captured in this forum and that you both using hip hop in different ways, but also similarly to really promote self-esteem and expression, the feeling in the body of being like empowered, the self-expression of being out there creating space, you know, talking about your pain, right? I've been, it, it help, has helped me. I mean, I, my, my kids helped me, but you guys have tremendously helped me to like slow down, listen to the verse. You know, we sat down and they've had me listen to the verse and the feeling. And so I didn't get to rest on my, did you hear that language? You know, they would unpack it for me and say, I want you to listen to it. When my, my son even described, I said, what does hip hop give you? I'm, I'm going to be interviewing this. What is it? You know, and he's, he just, I couldn't tell you the look that came over him, but he talked about the aesthetic, the beat. He, he talked about the lyrics but he said, these are the greatest writers of our generation. That's That's his quote. These are the greatest writers of our generation. They take the deepest part, they put it in, they make us feel it. They talk about it in the body. And that is the the school I've been getting during my dishwashing. So to meet you two really talking about it from a therapeutic place of being able to get out of my little head of, but it's violent and like, it should be on some level. How would it not represent the culture if it didn't have deep pain, deep aggression? It's coming from, so it's what I'm hearing from you guys, it's coming from a lifetime of trauma. And it sounds like you guys are really capturing that to help youth really be able to heal trauma, to really be able to move in the trauma and have a voice to it. Am I hearing that accurately? And we can move into the treatment element of this. I'd like to hear from both of you. On yeah, I'm sorry, Rafa. I was just going to say when she said the greatest writers of our, our generation, I, I immediately I was already thinking about Kendrick Lamar. Oh, he said that too. That's so funny. And yeah, I mean because he clearly is easily far and away one of the most brilliant minds and writers of our generation. And I don't even really listen to Kendrick Lamar that much. I should, but you know if you if you look at the song, I think it's Backseat Freestyle. Maybe I'm getting the the lyrics uh, the the song title wrong, Raphael. But when he's talking, it, you know, he's using this imagery of like. King Kong and, you know, talking about wanting to, you know, have sex with the world or, you know, I'm not going to use the exact verbiage, but like, he's also, I think the way I understand the song and Raphael, I'm, I'm open to your interpretation too, is like, he's calling upon stereotypes of African-American men and criticizing it and satirizing. And like, it's multiple layers of metaphor and meaning and use of language and cadence and rhythm. I mean, he's just such a brilliant writer who is using layers of metaphor and, and, and satire and both calling upon stereotypes and re-owning them and remixing them. And that's what hip-hop does. It remixes things. It appropriates, remixes, synthesizes new things. So I think that's one of the ways that, that I understand it. Rafael, I don't know if you, if you want to speak to that as well. 
Yeah, I think your son and, and Elle, you hit the nail on the head. And that's why I love lyrics so much. That's why I spend the lion's share of my energy in terms of my engagement with the culture is through the lyrics. And that's what often engages people is these artists are able to articulate a lived experience in a level of specificity and depth in the way that the average person can't, but feels. Mm -hmm. They feel it to that level of depth Mm -hmm. and the magnitude. Mm -hmm. Can't articulate it, but Mm -hmm. it resonates because for everything that we talked about, down to the physiological, we know that we experience the world physiologically as much as we do you know, at an intellectual level. And that's what the artists are able to create and give back to us. And just to add on to that, I always talk about hip hop as this renewable resource. It's this enormous gift, cultural gift that Mm -hmm. black and brown communities have because for every Kendrick Lamar, there's a hundred other Kendrick Lamars that may be locked up, may be killed, or simply just have not been given the platform or the opportunity to express themselves in that way. That is a part of the community. That is a part of of the culture. And so, you know, when we do the work, you know, sometimes I get like, you know, I'm getting older and I don't listen to all this and all that stuff. But every time I go out and do the work, I'm reminded that we're touching on deep cultural knowledge Mm -hmm. bases and skills and a universality of of the human experience, particularly for communities of color that everybody can identify with and tap into. And if we give them the opportunity, you know, for like the work that Elliot does, we give them the opportunity to express themselves with these great cultural tools. It's going to come out however it comes out. Mm -hmm. So I know we need to shift gears a little bit to Elliot's work. And I wanted to share one piece and we talked about this the last time we were on Elliot, that something that helped me significantly with the work that I do, that I learned from the work that Elliot does, and it's around this idea of regulation. And I've always understood the importance Mm -hmm. of self-regulation and and things like that. But because I, I focus so much on the cognitive side of things, on lyrics, which is, you know, unpacking and analyzing, what does this mean to you? And tell me and express and all that kind of stuff, which is a very heavy cognitive load. And, and and sometimes, you know, people aren't ready to just dive into that. But one of the studies that we did, the initial premise of the study was simply to be able to add more elements of hip hop culture into the intervention, right? So let's not just do lyric stuff. Let's, let's also teach beat making and let's help people tap into this other great aspect of the culture that we know can be so valuable for all of the, the reasons that, you know, Elliot and his model speak to and th- the therapeutic value. But one of the things that we found out through over the course of the study, not, not only was it successful for the people that participated, we saw depression go down and anxiety go down and some of the youth development indicators go up, but what came out of it was the need to have this opportunity to engage in something that wasn't so cognitively heavy. So we started out with beat making And then we moved into some of the lyrical analysis Mm -hmm. after. After you engage the body, is that what you're saying? So you found by engaging the beat making that you were engaging the entire body then to move into the lyrics and the more cognitive, is that what you're saying? Yeah, the nonverbal. 
Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know, able to mm-hmm. you know build that rapport as you know as we talk about co-regulation, the ability to establish. You know, we we forever in social work and in, in other mental health, we talk about the importance of building rapport, but oftentimes it's at a surface level. It's at that mm-hmm. you know, let's some small talk to make us feel more comfortable and things like that. Um, but if you can take it down even to a deeper level around, let's build rapport for the purposes of co-regulating down mm-hmm. to even a physiological level, then that may set the foundation or the platform for some of that more cognitively heavy stuff. I imagine and, uh, that being the most relevant for working with black and brown youth whose bodies are already, as we've talked about it, staying at a state more of stress and alarm and to start with a cognitive approach would be to really miss them it sounds like and so to be able to move into beat making first and really warm the body it sounds like you guys feel that as a really necessary component for connection and treatment and it's it's not that it can't happen and you know i think the ways that you know sort of professionally try to compensate for that is figuring out how do i connect interpersonally with someone beyond words, Mm -hmm. whether it's the proximity, tone Mm -hmm. of my voice, you know, Mm -hmm. all those skills that you try to build up in order to connect with people. So those things are still important and and it is possible to move into that. But, but, you know, I think what you're alluding to is that there can be value of of having this other way of connecting Mm -hmm. if it's potentially as seems like it won't work or just it's just an effective tool and it's been great to work with Elliot and just to see the level of engagement and just mm-hmm. it's just great great work and and I've been very fortunate yeah and just to frame it a little more Raphael spelled this out in terms of the elements or the pillars of hip hop which are the mm-hmm. constitute hip hop culture which we need to say is the grand context it's not just hip hop music it's in the context of the culture and where it came from and there really we say five elements of hip-hop where Raphael mentioned you know there's rapping or emceeing which comes from the live performance and engagement of the crowds but that came Mm -hmm. out of the context for that was coming out of the DJs playing the quote-unquote breaks or the breakdown section of the record which is usually a stripped down drum break the other instruments fall out and what DJ Cool Herc noticed, who is a, a DJ, he had emigrated from Jamaica when he was around 12 or 13 years old, brought with him this Jamaican sound system tradition of playing records on large sound systems, reverberating bass, and the tradition of toasting or talking braggadociously over the, the dub plates, the records that he was playing. So he brought that to the South Bronx where they emigrated to. His father was a DJ as well. He had a record collection and these giant homemade sound systems. So he used to start to play block parties, literally hip-hop is said to have been born this is kind of the cliche within hip-hop august 11th 1973 when dj cool herc debuted his merry-go-round technique where he played the breakdown section of the records because he found that people the party people the kids that he was djing for and two would dance like the most vigorously and get the most excited and seem to be you know just enjoying it the most and it was the peak of the party when he played the break so he extended the break by taking two copies of the same record or two different records with two different breaks and extending the break by first playing the first breakdown section, queuing it up on one turntable and then throwing the crossfader over when the break was about to end on the first one and throwing it back in, essentially manually looping the breakdown section, the drum beat. 
Now, you, we can trace this back further to West African rhythms, you know, the cyclical nature of West African rhythms and drumming, and that puts people into trance-like states and, you know, creates a sense of joining and unity in group settings. And we can also see how culturally and socially music is used for ceremonies and joining and healing and social cohesion, as well as regulation, group regulation and syncing, joining. But you can see how powerful it is. And this is out of joy. This is for enjoyment and fun. And we can say in the context of the South Bronx, which was one of the poorest and most disenfranchised neighborhoods with like the largest amount of trauma and gangs and stuff that they're young people just trying to get together enjoy mm-hmm. themselves empower themselves mm-hmm. create something social and joining and therapeutic and even educational and I'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute but so that then creates space when when cool herc instead of toasting in the jamaican tradition he can no longer take the headphones or the microphone and speak into them because he's using both hands to extend the break to make these are the first hip-hop beats this is where beat making which later uses samplers and drum machines to emulate or recreate the breaks or loop the breaks from these vinyl records so then you have the mc emerge and the mc the master of ceremonies who who sometimes can be called a rapper although in hip-hop we have our own internal debate as to whether an mc is a rapper rappers an mc but the mc who's hosting the party is keeping the party going is, is keeping people engaged there's a call and response talk about co-regulation on a group level right when i say hey you say ho hey ho hey ho now when i've listened to sam cook it was like live 1963 in harlem and sam cook does this with the audience you can hear it and you should listen to it it's an incredible landmark recording where you can hear this kind of back and forth this call and response again hearkening to west african griots and jamaican culture caribbean culture but also what you know african culture and traditions but it's incredibly powerful and engaging Right, and so, the so MC- that's one aspect that you feel like using in this is the co-regulate. That's really highlighting how the music is is generated in a way that can co-regulate as part of the community. In less technical terms, is the co-regulating of the community together through this music Absolutely. and how it would bring these disenfranchised youth to feel the sense of joy, yep. a sense of peace. And the idea of doing it as we were speaking again, as a sense of community. Absolutely. And, that and, makes sense, yeah. And this is something that I've talked personally with Bessel van der Kolk about and Bruce Perry. And in talking with van der Kolk, who was mentored by my step-grandfather, who studied how rhythms were used to mm-hmm. indoctrinate cult members that he then deprogrammed. He looked at low-frequency, repetitive bass drums being beaten in in cult ceremonies used to program people to put them into Mm -hmm. either light or deeper trance-like states depending on the neurophysiological openness suggestibility how hypnotizable you are how open you know we're we're all wired differently right so you can put people into light trance-like states through repetitive slow frequency or even the sub frequencies the sub patterns i think this is something that uh, i think i heard bruce perry or Stephen Porges talking about recently at the Trauma Research Foundation conference that we presented at. But anyway, coming back to it, yes. Yeah, so you have, historically speaking, you have the break, the the DJing, the beats being happened. You know, 1973, August 11th, DJ Cool Herc does this. The MC emerges because he literally doesn't have the the hands to hold the microphone anymore, and is preoccupied with this complex cognitive musical. But you know, kinesthetic action, right? Mm-hmm, he has to really mm-hmm. focus. But you feel the beat, right? And people are being unified through a singular beat or re- sequence of pulses, repetitive pulses, mm-hmm. rhythms. And, and it's a regulation. It's joy. And again, coming back to my discussion with Vanderkolk, talking about the importance of joy, 
right? Yes. And how healing and how important that is, the neurophysiological, whatever it is that joy that we experience, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, etc., in the face of and regulating us and taking us out of these stress response states where we're flooded with cortisol, adrenaline, etc., right? Being in a fight or flight and the social mm-hmm. engagement that happens, the green light, as it were, that level of functioning. And then you also have the other elements of hip hop, whether they be visual, graffiti, as Raphael referenced, the dance components, which is totally intertwined and directly mm-hmm. related to dancing to the breaks. That's why breaking, as we call it in hip hop culture, or the mainstream media called it break dancing, you're dancing to the Hmm. break, to the drum beat. Dance to the drummer's beat, right? So dropping it on the one, as James Brown led us to do. Get off on the good foot. That's where a lot of breaking, initial breaking came from. It was based on James Brown's the good foot and the strong rhythmic elements that are inherent in funk, disco, rock, set of jazz going back, but then hip hop really focused on that. And then, so we have... DJing and I'm and beat making the house under that MCing mm-hmm. rapping, you know, speaking mm-hmm. to the crowd, the co-regulation there, the co-regulation through the rhythms, the DJs playing, the visual manifestation of it in graffiti, the breaking or dancing in different forms of dance and kinesthetic movement there, both mm-hmm. individual and in the context of the group, people dancing together to the beat, and the fifth element of hip hop, knowledge, which Raphael really spoke to earlier, it's knowledge of the culture of hip hop the history of hip-hop, where it comes from, and knowledge of self is really an integral part of old-school hip-hop culture. So if you ask me, the process of meditation or psychotherapy is about as hip-hop as you can get. And this kind of process that Raphael is taking young people through and older people through as well, doing the textual, the so-called cognitive analysis or cognitive components, this metapsychological exploration, thinking about thinking, Thinking mm-hmm. about feeling, thinking about the psychoeducation is really important because it, it mm-hmm. has inextricable embodied components. And the thing about hip hop is that it is embodied. It is lived and practiced. All of these things are active. They are not passive. It's a response to trauma. We're pulling themselves out of being frozen, out of being passive recipients of violence, oppression, violation, trauma, and acting making themselves actors, empowering themselves, mm-hmm. right? And that's what hip-hop has done, not only in creating joy, but the counter-narratives that we see. And so well, empowering me- their own narratives, empowering the narratives they felt in their own body but couldn't put a name on it, that they feel Exactly. It. And a really consistent narrative that you can hear from musicians, from graffiti writers, from beat makers, from MCs, from DJs, is that that you'll also hear from people in bands. The idea of mm-hmm. locking in, the idea of this transcendence, even coming out of your body, not a negative dissociation, mm-hmm. but a flow state. But a flow state, right? Yes. Freestyling yes. when you're yeah. in the zone or hip hop heads say, I got open, when they're talking about yeah. rapping. Opening yourself, just kind of lifting out and elevating to this next kind of level and really being able to, to live it and experience it in this very connected way where it just kind of flows out of you. And mm-hmm. to me, that's important. We can hear not only narratives in lyrics, but also I conceptualize this idea of a nonverbal narrative and that beat making is a nonverbal narrative that we're able to construct that has certain structures that are containing, right? A repetitive beat is containing. It physiologically regulates us. It's predictable, whereas trauma is unpredictable and knocks us off our axis. That's my metaphor. It dysregulates us. We are regulated by the beat, 
it down regulates mm-hmm. our stress response system. It brings us together, especially if you can join with others. And if you feel isolated because you've been traumatized and no one can understand what you've been through, no one can identify with it, you feel disconnected, alienated, separate, alone, mm-hmm. you can join in nonverbal mm-hmm. and verbal ways, but nonverbal mm-hmm. ways through these repetitive rhythms. And that's something that explicitly I've talked with Bessel van der Kolk about, the importance of the group synchronized rhythmic engagement and activities through groups and how important and connecting that is and the aspects of joy. And so if we shift now to looking at the therapeutic beat making model, again, Raphael's already really highlighted a lot of these things in a really nice way and kind of set me up. If someone says, how is beat making therapeutic? And, and I think we have to just say, what is beat making? Beat making is creating the kind of the backing beat or the instrumental composition with the strong, like repetitive pulses and drum beats, drum sounds that you hear, right? That came from DJ Cool Herc's playing the breaks. The way that I view the therapeutic beat making model, there's three kind of components. If someone says, how is this therapeutic? I say, well, the first is that it's relational. It's an interpersonal thing that you do. And as we mentioned before, it's a way, hip hop is a way that you can, and I think using hip hop and the activity of beat making in this aspect is like, it's not stripping away someone's defenses or asking them to, to communicate or be in a way that's unfamiliar to them or that seems like not fun. It's a fun, joyful way of learning about yourself and other people and creating something that very immediate. And we know that the number one predictor of positive therapeutic outcome is therapeutic alliance, right? Right. And so if you're doing it in a co-regulating way that's fun, that's interactive, that's a multi-sensory integration through kinesthetic, visual, and auditory, when you press a button on a beat machine, it lights up and you hear a certain sound, it's really powerful, right? And you're doing so it. So you're con- sitting there with kids and you're literally teaching them in that moment how they themselves can create the beat and the, the experience and what it could mean for them. Absolutely. And yeah. so this, there's the first domain is the relational. The second is the expressive domain, right? There's mm-hmm. the idea both of, you know, Freud's idea of catharsis and release in a socially appropriate way of expressing aggression and other feelings and Mm -hmm. elaborating that in a nonverbal way and creating a narrative. Beats have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Even if it's just a a loop repeating, it's a structure. It's a predictable structure, Mm -hmm. whereas trauma is unpredictable. And so I think creating that on the computer on a timeline where they see the beginning, it's linear. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's a nonverbal narrative that you're constructing. And we know treating trauma, you're trying to integrate the split off parts, the experiences mm-hmm. that you're not able to articulate and that maybe you're not even aware of and articulating it in a constructed, sequential, linear way that's not overwhelming. And it's fun to be able to do that kinesthetically and bodily, like hitting the pads, using the I mouse bet, yeah. on the computer, hitting the pads on the beat machine, hearing the sound come out, feeling the reverberations in your body and the sense of control. And that, you know, there's also the, the regulatory properties of the repetitive beats as well. But it also speaks to the third domain, which is the self-concept domain. So when we master something, when we and I help a kid to create a beat, to make their own beat in their song, they then are learning how to do something. They're becoming an active non-passive agent they have a sense of autonomy and agency i always say do you want to use this kick drum or this kick drum or that kick i give them multiple options because mostly kids are told no 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 do this i say yes 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 you're important what's your opinion have some autonomy i want you to be invested in this i want you to identify with what you're doing feel invested and have a sense of mastery so they've made this oh my god i made this this is so cool so not only are we speaking to esteem 
coming closer to mm-hmm. the ideal sense of self, but also this sense of agency and efficacy that they can have an impact on the world, have an effect on the world, and take away this mm-hmm. concrete thing that they've made. So there's the process of making it and the relationship that happens and the co-regulation in that relationship. But there's also the tangible takeaway, right, or the transitional object. And they take that and they have encapsulated in that the experience. And so there's this, I think, an increased sense of esteem, of efficacy, of, you know, mastery. And that's super important to have a sense of control and mastery over your own body and things that your body and brain and mind can do. Clinically speaking, we're really giving them something actionable and active and proactive that involves movement. And we've recently, last year, we started to integrate dynamic mindfulness. So using coordinated breathing and physical Mm -hmm. movements to breathe in and out, to teach kids mindfulness, to be aware of their bodies and teach them coping mechanisms, especially dealing with trauma and stress. And we've integrated that into the model and kind of told them, hey, if you want to be able to be as creative as you can be, you got to kind of be in a more of a flow state or more of a calm state, not a, you know, a fight or flight state or not a shutdown state. So you're helping them in some ways bringing them into themselves in the journey, in the process of like bringing them into flow, bringing them into their own body, into their own mindfulness. And then what I hear from that, it gives them a sense of esteem, a sense of agency. But also I want to come back to the, just the emphasis on the co-regulation. We've been talking a lot about that today, the sense of cortisol and threat that can remain in the body and the ability to co-regulate. And it sounds like it also teaches them that through this process that they can regulate themselves totally. with the music and learn to integrate it. That's wonderful. I can give you a real quick example. We had one kid, he's a real sweetheart of a kid, but he would get really dysregulated and kind of stuck in a dysregulated kind of fight or flight state. And I remember this was several years ago in San Francisco when we were working at a school there. And this kid came in before class off the playground really frustrated visibly the neural wi-fi was firing we were picking up on it we could see you could see it on his face the tone of his voice i said hey so and so why don't you just go hop on the beat machine over there with cooper and you know smash some pads hit some pads and you know so we let him do his thing five ten minutes later when class is starting he's been down regulated he's he's been Mm -hmm. hitting the pads repetitively getting into it being able to channel it in there having cooper as an instructor not a teacher who's like, not even an instructor, but a co-facilitator, if you will, kind of being there as a co-facilitator, a co-regulator. Oh, yeah, here, try this. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Smash those pads. Make that beat. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, here, try this. Being helpful and assisting him, but allowing him to take the lead. This is what any good therapist does, right? Mm-hmm. What does your patient client come in with? How do you do the, you know, I don't want to call it jujitsu or tai chi or whatever it is, but use the forces, the aggression, the energy, the thoughts, the fantasies, and the physical and how do you kind of like help them to downregulate, co-regulate them? This kid was like pretty much totally regulated, was able to access his prefrontal cortex, speak, communicate, think, plan, as opposed to be really kind of shut down and inflexible, was much more or open. Sh- or shamed about yeah. sort of the active engagement and giving agency. And he was proud of what yeah. he did. And fundamentally, that's what it's about. We want kids to experience joy, to be in their body, have a sense of control over it joy experience have that as a takeaway and something they can take with them and i think that's part of like Raphael, you talk about like the artifacts in hip-hop right the kind of different artifacts but like a takeaway a transitional object and that experience of co-regulation yeah you guys have really learned a synergy together of uh, 
the idea of how the, the, the focus on the lyrics and focus on the beat making and the synergy and the important aspects of hip hop. And you've also have written an article together. Is that accurate? Is yeah, that- I've written a couple, couple of articles that touch on, well, one is an actual research study, the one I alluded to earlier, where we worked in the middle schools and combined Elliot's model with mine to work with some middle school students in a, in a summer program. And we focused on looking at reducing depression, depressive symptoms. And that's where both worked together in a complementary way that we found to be very valuable. And so it was a chance to kind of put some data behind what we do. You know, it was great because, you know, at the start of the summer, the year prior, I'd worked with a summer program to look at the youth development outcomes for what they were doing. And what we found was that a certain segment of the group had a really elevated level of depression, but there was nothing in place to really help them. So we said, okay, if we do this again next year, perhaps we should have some support services available. And so long story short, we said, okay, how about we implement my music-based model? And at that time, Elliot and I had been working together. We said, you know, why don't we try to complement? That's another thing is trying to advance the integration. Like, how can we do this better, more creatively, and things mm-hmm. like that. Real quickly, for that group, we found at the beginning of the summer, we had, again, we had a group that had very elevated level of depression. So we said, okay, let's focus on that group and see if working with them can help. And so not only at the end of the summer had those elevated levels of depression come down, but they came down lower than the rest of the camp that was at a you know, regular wow. level. So not only was there that growth, but they got down to a, a lower level than what was considered normal or okay. And then the second article was us really just teasing out the elements of our model and using them together, just really giving out the principles. This is what these things mean. These are the objectives. This is where it comes from. This is what we expect to see. So people that are interested in working with either the model or working in that hybrid component, they could kind of have a blueprint for how to move mm-hmm. forward. The last little piece, I, I think one of the things why I think it is so complementary in many ways is the components of therapeutic beat making fit right into the blueprint of EMPYD. I mean, the whole the idea around mastery and connection, yeah. the relational piece, the community that's established, confidence that's built, the different skills and competencies that come out of that. I talk about it as the mastery network, and then you add community, it's a community of mastery. But all those things are reinforced through his model, and I think they just really speak to what we know is important developmentally Mm -hmm. for young people. And the idea that those things reinforce each other actively at every instant, and then collectively over time build upon each other. So you have this in-the-moment synergy but then you have this cumulative effect over time, which is really, really valuable and, and important. Yeah, and, and, and I guess I would just jump in and say, you know, lyrics and, and rapping in itself is regulating 
I've even heard you know you folks on the show on Therapist Uncensored talk about as a coping mechanism to downregulate your stress levels to sing or talk to yourself to feel that resonance in your body, and that's mm-hmm. something that MCs and rappers do either a cappella or more often to repetitive beats, to background instrumental hip-hop beats. And that's something, you know, I just want to shout out um, some of our kind of collaborators. Rhythmic Mind, it's a theory and a model based in Bruce Perry, Stephen Porges, Vander Kolk's mm-hmm. research model that our minds are rhythmic and we're rhythmically oriented in terms of co-regulation, but also mm-hmm. self-regulation through repetitive beats and also through just the use of repetitive lyrics and rapping that we encode that information differently. And I think that it's really important to make people feel seen, to feel heard, to connect, to use these, you know, what we might call them Mm -hmm. culturally responsive or culturally resonant, both metaphorically resonant and actual physically, neurophysiologically resonant activities and mechanisms that we can use in really therapeutic and regulating ways. And just to put it out there for the listeners as well, we did an hour-long intro video on the therapeutic applications of hip-hop for the Trauma Research Foundation's online conference. So if folks check that out, they should be able to check out both the website and the, the kind of conference materials that's there. We'll also be doing a series of experiential exercises, very applied, you know, in the moment kind of things that will have pragmatic takeaways for clinicians and non-clinicians as well as doing deeper dives through the Trauma Research Foundation website, which is Bessel van der Kolk et al.'s foundation and the conference portal, etc. So it's all grounded in the most current research, theory, and models. And Raphael, I might just give one last shout in terms of like the, uh, the Mindful Beats study that we're still kind of checking out the, um, the, the data. Maybe you can speak briefly to that. You alluded to it earlier, the premise behind the Mindful Beats study is introducing mindfulness and the therapeutic beat making model. And this is with a younger population of students. And I think that's something that Elliot can talk a little bit about is all these approaches are across the lifespan, but mm-hmm. Elliot has done work with the youngest of students as, as well as older students as well. But this was the desire to find out would introducing mindfulness have an additive impact in addition to what we already know is beneficial about therapeutic beat making. And so we're still Mm -hmm. analyzing that data to see. I know you have some anecdotal data that you may want to share a little bit about, but that's what that study is about. I'm curious about the outcome. I'll be sure to forward that over. And and everything that you've just mentioned will absolutely be in our show notes. So some of the conference that you just presented and things like that, anything that you would like to toss into our show notes, I know our listeners would be really interested. Yeah. So just real quick, anecdotally, the early data shows, and I did some, you know, interviews with students and parents, but, you know, some of the kids said that they really found the therapeutic beat making groups and the beat making, learning that helpful and expressing themselves and kind of articulating, you know, feelings and thoughts and experiences that they weren't able to before. They felt that they learned from it. That's kind of speaks to the mastery, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of idea of mastery, efficacy, etc. They felt that they were more engaged at school. And they also said that they found the mindfulness and the dynamic meditation, dynamic mindfulness useful not only at school to help them concentrate, but also in terms of conflict with peers, siblings, parents, that they used it to kind of calm down, to self-regulate, and to engage in verbal kind of social connection, negotiations and de-escalation, that kind of thing. Parents also noticed that their kids related to music differently and were able to kind of understand 
Yeah, like instead of just the gestalt, the whole song. They, I had two parents independently say to me, oh yeah, when we're riding in the car and we're listening to music to the radio, my kid will start talking about the snare drum and I don't know what they're talking about. But they say, hey mom, do you, you know, hey dad, do you hear the snare drum? I even had one dad who was telling me that this kid who really was disengaged at school and very uninterested and was struggling academically was more interested to go to school and it changed the nature of his relationship with his father where he would come home from school instead of going straight to his room and jumping on social media or being on that. He would come and he would talk and socially engage. He would engage his dad and say, hey dad, I learned this at beat making and elaborate it. So you can see that it had an impact and kids were internalizing and, and using these resources and opportunities. So we're looking forward to kind of doing more of both quantitative and qualitative analysis. But the early findings certainly line up with our other qualitative and quantitative data that we've gathered over the year and anecdotal data that this is a really impactful thing that's engaging, helpful, fun, interesting, joyful, embodied, and connecting. That's wonderful. But if people want to access the two of you for either one to be able to bring it into their schools to learn more for their own practice where would they reach you www.flowstory.org is the name of my organization that's a great way to reach me my email r-a-p-t-j-r or rap t jr at gmail.com i'm on social media at Rap T Jr. or at R-A-P-T-J-R. You can find me all over social media. Those are great ways to connect with me. And I'm happy to talk with anybody, point them to some of the resources. I will have an online training course available soon, probably mid-summer, since so much of travel has been eliminated. I uh, want to have an opportunity for people to engage in the content. Uh, in a deeper way uh, than just kind of reading an article. So we'll have that available for people to sign up for. What about you, Elliot? Folks can um, visit our website, todaysfuturesound.org.org, which has links to all of our social media platforms. If they want to find us on Instagram, we do have a lot of content there. If you want to take kind of inside look at today's future sound our youtube channel has a lot of videos and shows what we do youtube.com slash today's future sound we also do a weekly saturday live stream a global beat cipher where we bring beat makers from around the world remixing vintage songs from across the globe and that's an interactive thing that people can participate in and watch the live stream on facebook youtube or twitch something that we do on a global basis virtually and in real life is we show people resources that they do have via smartphone technology via computers, online beat-making applications. This is um, something that we really specialize in. We train educators, parents, mental health clinicians, teachers, administrators, you know, so on and so forth, in where are these resources available and how do you use them as therapeutic and educational cross-cultural interventions. So people can also find us on Twitter at TFS underscore Beats, B-E-A-T-S. And then you can email us, info at todaysfuturesound.org and my email is egan at todaysfuturesound.org so yeah all the various social media platforms you know twitter instagram facebook we're just today's future sound and we live stream there so i encourage folks to reach out to us there we're happy to share resources and ideas reach out ask questions and let's dialogue let's talk about it all right thank you guys both so much for bringing all of your experience and knowledge it's been an amazing time 
I mean, just a, who would have known when we first started talking where we would be at this moment to be able to enrich this entire dialogue with what's happening in the world. So thank, thank you, you very much. much. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, sorry. Thank you for the invitation. It's been great to be able to, to talk about our work in general, but then also to talk about the real life implications of, of some of the things that we've discussed. So thank you for this platform to have this conversation. Absolutely. And as an avid listener leading up to this point who is using your podcast even just to regulate myself through, through rough times leading up here, I appreciate it. And we'll see you around the bend. <laughs> Thank you for saying that for me. All right. You guys take care. And if you enjoyed this show, please rate and review. That's always really helpful for us. And share it. Share it far and wide, especially this one, because I think this one needs to be heard at a very important time in our world. So thanks for joining us. And again, we'll see you around the bin. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the program and our guest today as much as I did. Now, lots of information that they discussed, a lot of resources that will all be in our show notes. So be sure to tune into that. You can also find direct ways how to reach them and their articles and books on our show notes. So thank you so much for joining us. And if you appreciated this program, please rate, review, and pass it on to somebody that you might find interested and could use it. Also, I wanted to do a big shout out to our Patreons. Really appreciate your support. And for those of you that could be able to jump on board and help support getting this kind of program out far and wide to those who might not otherwise have it accessible, we'd sure appreciate. Jump onto our website at therapistuncensored.com and you will see opportunities to become a Patreon member. All right. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.